Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would fall uh, with might and power and deep conviction upon each and every one of us as uh, we think about your word. Uh, we ask, Father, that you would bring your word home to us uh, to confront and connect with the real me, the real each one of us uh, in the real world, uh, so that uh, you might uh, do your work of grace in our lives. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Um, so, uh, first of all, <laughs> first of all, if, uh, you, uh, were, t- have been tuning into this service hoping you were going to hear something about Mother's Day, uh, you won't. Um, we don't really, cent- we don't really celebrate <clears throat> Mother's Day at, uh, Church of the Messiah. Obviously, we, uh, we're very pro-women and we're very pro-moms, uh, but, uh, we, uh, we don't do Mother's Day as part of our church service. I hope each of you are doing whatever you can, uh, to honor moms and women, uh, wherever you are this morning. Um, in fact, actually, probably as you were listening to, to Daniel read the scripture text, you were probably saying that's the weirdest Mother's Day text <laughs> I've ever heard of, all about wailing and sorrow and misery and everything like that. So uh, one of the things that we do is, is preach through books of the Bible. We're going through the book of James, and that means we're going to look at something which people, many, many Canadians, and uh, to be honest, many Canadian Christians find this idea sort of a, such a weird idea that they downplay it or never think about it. But an easy way uh, for the average Canadian to make fun of, uh, uh, I would call us biblical Christians, uh, is in fact to make fun of the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus. I was just seeing something uh, in the Babylon Bee, uh, a satirical um, organization the other day, uh, showing a, pic- a picture of a man looking very confused and perplexed because he was trying to read the book of Revelation to figure out when Donald Trump would be president again. And uh, it's very easy uh, for us to make fun of this doctrine, and it seems weird, and in many ways it seems very, very off-putting. Um, but this text, you might not have noticed it, the text that we're going to look at today, uh, at the very heart of it is this idea of the return of Jesus. In fact, uh, just to walk towards the problem, uh, given even though that many Canadians think it's a very weird idea, like, I don't know, is he going to sort of come down like Iron Man out of the sky and somehow the whole world's going to see him and he's going to change everything? Like, it just sounds sort of kooky and weird and not very attractive. But the fact is... It's in fact an essential part of the Christian faith. Uh, it's not just a little tiny bit in one part that uh, a group of kooky Christians focus on. Uh, the teaching of the fact that Jesus will one day return is, uh, is a very important Christian teaching all the way through the Bible. Hence, even in James, it shows up. So let's just look. In fact, James is going to be very helpful for some of us. Uh, well, actually, it's going to be helpful for all, <laughs> for all of us. But it's going to be helpful, uh, cause it brings to the fore some of the off-putting aspects to many of us about the doctrine or the teaching of the second coming of Jesus. So if you have your own Bibles, now turn to James chapter 4, verse 17. Very helpful if you read along with me. Uh, that The verse will show up at the bottom of the screen, but there's something about having it in your own Bible and being able to look at it, maybe making notes uh, to help you know, bring, bring it home to you. It also helps to keep it before you so that you know I'm not playing fast and loose with the Bible. I just want to try to help us understand it and to have the Bible come. And at the end of the day, I, I think the doctrine is so important and so wise and just so important for each of us that that I'm hoping that after I've talked about it a little while, after we've looked at the text, that even if you're not a Christian and you don't believe it, that you would wish it was true. (laughs) 
that you would wish it was true. Um, so let's look. It begins like this. So whoever knows, chapter 4, verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Um, I didn't cover this last week, and it's sort of a very important part for the next bit, but let's let's look at the, the whole idea about the second coming of Christ, just see what's going on, and then I'm going to come back, and we're going to look through all of these texts. I'm going to explain why it's important and, and why uh, we need to take it to heart. The next bit, come now, verse 1 of chapter 5, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And just sort of pause here for a second. Um, some of you know a little bit about uh, the uh, the Christian faith. The word for coming here, it's going to occur t- several times in the text, is actually the word parousia, which is actually a technical word uh, in the New Testament for the coming of Jesus. And so this text very clearly says that the reason in, in verse 1 that people will be weeping and howling is because Jesus is going to be coming back. And then, of course, even the reference to the last days. For Christians, the last days began uh, with the death and resurrection of Jesus. We all live in the last days, and the last days will end when Jesus returns. So this is a text talking about the end of all things. And here we go. I mean, two types of questions would come with us. First of all, I think for most people, they'd say, George, I guess I could believe in the idea of the end of all things, but but shouldn't it be happy? <laughs> like, it, this sounds like a downer, like not only here, but when we look at verses four, five, and six, it just sounds depressing. Like, why should, like, George, don't you think the last days, like the end, shouldn't it be more like a party? Shouldn't it be happy? not something which is described with weeping and howling and misery. Well, let's continue to look. Uh, look at verses 4 to 6. By the way, the, this the theme of, um, of unhappiness is going to continue here, but we'll see that it continues to sort of bring out the importance or talk about the return of Jesus. Verse 4, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not uh, resist you. Uh, In this particular case, it's once again this idea that we can see that Jesus is aware of all of these things. Uh, in fact, even the, the imagery of the Lord of hosts is often, it's, it's throughout the entire Bible, but it's often very much connected with the idea of the return of Jesus. That, that once again, um, because of the return of Jesus, there's going to be the, these consequences for these particular uh, rich people. And then in verses 7 to 11, uh, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Here we see this word parousia in the original language, very clearly connected to the coming of Jesus. I'll read it again. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, 
so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, this idea of the soon return of Jesus. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And just pause. If uh, you're watching this uh, just sort of as um, out, out of curiosity, uh, Job is a whole book in the Old Testament. I'm not going to sort of go into that in particular. Um, but once again, you see this. In fact, for many of you, it looks part of the reason. So part of the reason we don't like the idea, the average Canadian doesn't like the idea of the second coming of Jesus is, first of all, it sounds a bit ridiculous, a bit kooky. Uh, secondly, it sounds like it's going to be time of misery, uh, not something which is going to be good. And the third thing is it, it, to many people, it makes it sound as if you don't confront the problems of the world. Like, look how it goes. It goes from this profound problem of self-indulgence, of oppression, and of uh, judicial, societal-approved murder. And then it tells Christians to be patient because Jesus is coming back, as if you shouldn't do anything about it. So in many ways, James is perfect. There are three big problems with it, the kookiness, um, the, the, the sadness, and the fact that it's not happy, and the fact that it seems to lead to indifference, are all seem to be right here in the text. Um, and then just one final part. We are going to go back and I'm going to look at it. I just wanted to bring it out, right? So we see what's going on here. Uh, but just a final verse. Um, and just before I read this verse, uh, because I got my blog in late this week, uh, you didn't get the blog uh, yesterday. You'll either get it sometime today or you'll get it tomorrow morning. Uh, but I'm not going to talk at all about this next verse. Uh, I wrote my blog about it. So uh, if you aren't on our church mailing list, uh, send us an email, get on our email list, and uh, you, you'll get... The, the weekly blog, and another thing called Growing in Grace, which I write every week, uh, includes a, a sort of a some teaching on prayer, some help with um, good attitudes that will help you in your life, a memory verse for you to memorize. So you'll get that if you if you sign up to the uh, to the, the the email or get on the email list, and you'll hear about other things like the announcements and stuff. But I I'm not going to talk about this at all in the sermon. I talk about it in the blog, but I'll read it. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So, what on earth is going on? It seems to talk as if one day Jesus will return and the whole world will know that Jesus has returned. Uh, and doesn't that sound a bit kooky, George? And uh, it doesn't actually sound very appealing. And you said that, uh, you actually think that uh, if you think about it a little bit more, you're going to wish it was true, even if you can't yet believe that it's true. Uh, so what's going on? And I can the, the reason this is such good news, love wins. Love wins. You look at the world right now, it definitely does not look as if love is winning. In fact, if you look at most of history, it doesn't look as if love wins. In fact, maybe for many of you in your own life, it definitely does not feel as if love is winning in your life. In fact, it feels as if everything is winning except love. But this, the thing which is so important about this text is that love wins. In fact, not only does love win, love wins, life wins, goodness wins, justice wins, love wins. 
And in fact, if you think about it for a second, if love wins but life doesn't win, then how can you even say that love wins? If love wins but justice doesn't win, how can you say that love has won? If justice wins but love doesn't win, if justice wins but life doesn't win, how can you say that either life is won? Like, what would it mean to say that life wins if love and justice and goodness doesn't win? That actually might be more like hell, like a a terrible version of this earth where at least there's occasionally some goodness and occasionally some justice and occasionally some love along with life. But this text is telling us in a very, very powerful way. That's the, but part of the importance of the doctrine of the return of Jesus is that love wins. And it's not just that love wins, but love wins, life wins, goodness wins, justice wins, and they win in such a way that each are at peace and make each other whole. They're whole in themselves and together they're even more whole. That's what the Bible is teaching. And only in the gospel do you get this taught about in a very, very coherent way that this is actually not just like a story of the tooth fairy. It's not like the Easter bunny. It's not like Santa Claus, that this is real. This is true. This is something that you can stake your life on, that you can base your life on, that you can begin to look at the world in light of the fact that this is true. And why do we say that? It's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. Only the Christian faith has a doctrine of God that that actually can make sense of love. That from all eternity, the Father has loved the Son and the Son has loved the Father. The Holy Spirit is both loving the Father and loving the Son and is in fact almost the love itself between himself, between the Father and the Son. Every other God, whether it's just that everything is God, which has to include It has to include hatred. It has to include evil. And and how can that be love? And and if if God is everything, that has to include the opposite of love. And if there's only a singular God, like the God of Islam, then if if there is any love in God, then it it meant he has need love. And, And we all know if we meet somebody who just seems to be really needy, love, have this huge need love, we stay away from them most of the time. Because we don't want to get sucked into this, this unending, you know, this unending need for love. And, and that's what happens if you only have a solitary God. And yet, what the Christian Bible teaches, what Jesus has revealed with absolute clarity is that from all eternity, the Father has loved the Son. The Son has loved the Father. The Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son. That The Holy Spirit is love. He is love. And out of love, Jesus set aside God, the Son of God, sets aside his glory and prerogatives. He takes on human flesh, and out of love, he lives amongst us a fully human life. Out of love, he dies on the cross for us out of love. He takes upon himself all of the shame, all of the accusations that can be against you. In a sense, all of the things that make you anxious, all of the things that make you feel needy, all of the things that you are guilty about, he takes them upon himself. The demands that other people make upon you that you cannot pay, he pays that demand. He takes upon himself that punishment. He tastes all there is to taste out of death for you, knowing that you cannot taste all there is to taste of death. You can not taste God's judgment for yourself. It will unmake you. And so out of love for you and out of love for me, he dies on the cross. And out of love for you, he exchanges his destiny for your doom so that you are clothed with his perfect ability to love the Father and to love the Holy Spirit and to be loved. And that becomes yours in him when you put your faith and trust in him. And this same Jesus 
who died and tasted all there is to taste of death, who experiences God's judgment, is the same one who rises from the dead and defeats death. And he is the same one who will return. So when he returns, who returns? Love returns. Life returns. Goodness returns. Justice returns. And they return to win. The end of the story is that love wins. The end of the story Life wins. The end of the story, justice wins. Goodness wins. Truth wins. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that who is returns. And that is the end of the story. Now, some of you might say, George, it's very hard to look at the world and think that all of this could come to an end. In fact, um, those of you who might not know much, uh, our office is uh, in the gay village. Uh, it's in center town of Ottawa. And uh, I was here in the office yesterday working on my sermon, trying to get it uh, sort of finished. And uh, several times I went out for a bit of a walk along Bank Street. Sometimes I get sort of stuck and a walk really helps. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm walking along and I, and I, I realize I'm going to be talking about this. And I, I realize, you know, it's hard. I can, it's just so easy to see how people have a hard time believing in the second coming of Jesus because it's hard to walk down Bank Street. And we're not far from the parliament buildings. And it's hard to walk down this street and think that this could all come to an end. In fact, the matter is, is that we do think about it coming to an end. But when we think about it coming to an end in our culture, it's always the death and evil wins. I mean, you go on Netflix, you go on Amazon Prime, you go on Apple TV, probably go on Crave or all of those ones, and you will effortlessly find shows about the end of the world. You will effortlessly see worlds, uh, movies or TV series about asteroids hitting the earth or some ecological crisis or, I don't know, some virus invented in a lab somewhere that gets unleashed in the world and ends up killing everybody. Um, and in all of those cases, there's evil and there's death. But it's very interesting, even in the bleakest of these movies, none of them end with just the final parting scene of everything dead. It always ends with a spaceship and a couple who are out, who are going, with the hope of some type of of future, of a small number of people in Greenland that survived the asteroid hitting so that there's the beginning of some type of a rebuilding of the Earth. Because there's something about us human beings that it is essential for us. We cannot live without hope. And that many of us, many of you, we live in seasons of despair. We live in seasons of hopelessness. But we hope against hope. We hope against appearances. We long that there be a return to us of some type of hope, a hope that we will be loved, a hope that we will be accepted, a hope that there can be a, a reunification of our family or of a of a righting of wrongs or of, of, of whatever it is. But we need hope. And so even Hollywood and all of its bleakest and even our best story writers and poets and all of their bleakest, there has to be some type of hope at the end because in our bones, we do not believe. We don't, you know, science tells us death is the end. That's the scientific truth. Scientifically, it will all end in death. But in our hearts, we know there must be hope. You see, that's why I say to you, some of you might say, George, I don't know about the death and resurrection of Jesus and I don't know about his returned, but I sure hope that's true. Because it would sure be good if, in fact, our longing for hope and a longing for the, for truth and goodness and love and life and justice and mercy finally winning, that that's actually true. 
And that's, in fact, what the gospel proclaims. And that's, in fact, the context within which the book of James is talking about this. In fact, if you think about this, um, that what the, the Bible is saying is because Jesus lived in history, and he didn't just live in history and, and then die in history and rise from dead in history, but he died in the context of what our Jewish friends call the Tanakh or the Torah, and we Christians call the Old Testament a, a series of 39 books of unparalleled wisdom and insight and beauty, an unparalleled uh, uh, re- repository and teaching about justice and how to treat people and the dignity of human beings and the, the, the foundation of human rights. All of that is in this story and it is in the context of this story that Jesus lives, that he dies, that he rises and he will come again. And it is a deep story, not just an historical truth, but in the context of deep and profound meaning and a meaning potentially for you. So in light of that, Let's look again at what James is saying to us about how to live wisely, how to live the good life, the beautiful life. Let's look again. Let's look, go back to verse 417. We'll go through this very quickly. But let's look again at chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him or for her, it is sin. So what? The, just think about it for a second. If it is the case that love wins... If it, in fact, is the case that love wins, that the good life, the beautiful life, has to be more than just following rules and not breaking rules. You see, so for so many things, for so many religions, so many spiritualities, it's all about following certain rules and, and keeping certain types of rituals. But if we understand that, in fact, love wins, that we were made for love, that the, the end of our life can be, in fact, finally being immersed in love and dwelling in love in an everlasting way, then we know that this side of the grave, the beautiful life, the good life, the loving life is always going to be more than just not breaking rules. Because you see, that's exactly how it is. It's not just a matter of the fact that the mom goes out throughout the day and says, it's been a good day, I love my kids, I only slapped them three times, or I didn't slap them once. (laughs) No, no. A good mom, a loving mom, she, she anticipates their needs. She, she hugs them and, and she, she helps them. They, they bake cookies together. They, they do arts and crafts together. They go for walks. They look at nature. They do all of those types of things. Uh, because love is more than just making sure you don't break, you know, certain rules. Don't slap my kid, you know, or something like that. Uh, when they haven't done anything wrong or don't slap my kid, period, or, you know, whatever. It's not just, I didn't break any rules. It's no, love is more. And so that's why this text is so important. It says that we can be guilty of sins of omission and that these sins of omission matter. In fact, I would say that three of the big types of sins that we are guilty of, of omission, is a failure to be generous, a failure to forgive, and a failure to love. A failure to be generous, a failure to give, uh, to, to forgive, and a failure to love. And that, in fact points us right to the very next text. It doesn't sort of go so much about the failure to love in the next text. That's going to come up in the one after that, but there's the failure of generosity. Let's look again at chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, the parousia, the coming of Jesus, that in this particular case, these particular rich people, 
They, the coming of Jesus is going to lead to them weeping. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. It's going to, talk to lead to them howling for the miseries that come upon you. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. In other words, while the last days are coming, you've been just hoarding your treasures. What's being talked about here is the sin of omission. They failed to be generous. The text isn't saying, you see, here's the importance of understanding the doctrine of the second coming. If you read the entire Bible, what does it say about being in God's presence? In God's presence, there's a fullness of joy. In God's presence is an end of our longings and yearnings. There, it, there will be a pleasure a pleasure that if we were to experience it right now, even the tiniest reflection or the shadow of a reflection, if we were to experience that in its full heavenly, that, that just that, that tint of it, it, it we'd explode. <laughs> our heads would explode. Our bodies would explode. In the new heaven and the new earth, we will have resurrection bodies that are actually fit to experience a fullness of joy, a fullness of pleasure. So the Bible isn't against soft pillows. The Bible isn't saying that you should have no luxury in your life. Because if it was, it would mean that the, what Jesus is coming to bring makes absolutely no sense. It would be contradictory. But what we see here is a complete and utter failure of generosity. A complete and utter failure of generosity. You know, here's the thing for us Canadians. I can tell you this right now. There is always good reasons to not be generous. In fact, it'd be very, very simple. You go to a coffee shop, I mean, when we can finally sit in them, or you go to a coffee shop, you stand outside, whether it's outside of Bridgehead, uh, Tim Hortons, or Starbucks, all of them within a close walk of here, and you get talking to people, and you're saying, I was thinking of giving $100 away. Every single one of them effortlessly like that can give you 10 reasons why you shouldn't be generous. And you could probably generate 20 reasons yourself why you shouldn't be generous. There's always good reasons not to be generous. And the second thing is, there's never enough money to be generous. I mean, you might have a hard time believing that. I mean, how many billions did the Gates have to have before they could be generous? <laughs> I mean, you know, and you have to wonder, did they wonder a little bit about, oh, can I really be generous? I'd sure like to hit that 70 billion mark, you know? But the fact of the matter is, is that for most of us, there's always something else that we could buy that would really make our lives a little bit more comfortable. Or for those of us who are a bit more careful about the future, we could always put a little bit extra in our TFSA or a little bit more in our RRSP or a little bit more in some type of a really healthy environment. And we can always say that when we just hit this level, then I'll be generous. When I just hit this level, then I'll be generous. When I just hit this level, then I'll be generous. When I, and it just, it goes on and on and on. Surveys regularly show that no matter what income level you are, you think that if you could just have five to ten thousand dollars more a year, life would be just actually begin to be comfortable. And you can think that at forty, at sixty, eighty, a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, you still think that. You see, the fact of the matter is, for us as Canadians, this text here is talking about you and me. I mean, here's another thing about us as Canadians and generosity. None of us think we're rich, but I can, I, <laughs> I don't bet, but I'd bet you a hundred dollars that for some of us, if we were just to all of a sudden show everybody connected to our congregation what we make after we've said that we're not rich, a big part of us would go, Oh yeah, that's so rich. You were, yeah, so full. You were so rich. <laughs> 
<laughs> and and we might you know some of us at the lower end of the spectrum are going yeah 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 you think you're not rich whoa you are rich like this text is talking about you but the fact of the matter is i've been to africa haven't been all over the world but i've been to africa i've been in angola i've been in kenya and let me tell you there is a large section of people in kenya and angola that for almost every single one of us, if they could see the houses we have, the benefits we have, the streets that we live in, the cars that we drive, the money that we spend, the food we can buy, they're going to say, yeah, 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 you don't think you're rich, you're so rich. And yet, there's always a good reason never to be generous, and there's always, this feels as if there's never enough money to be generous. And yet, we listen to this text. You see, love wins. Jesus will return. And what matters, well, at the end of the day, (laughs) at the end of the day, listen, none of us can be generous enough. None of us can outgive God. Like, none of us can. I can't. And the fact of the matter is, is I'll share with you this really, really fantastic Bible text for you know the grace of our Lord, it's, it's, if you want to uh, get it later on and, and memorize it, it's not going to be on your screen. Uh, it's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Isn't that a wonderful text? Help you understand the gospel? You know, it's, it's partially picturing that if every time you, you uh, break a, a a, a moral rule against another person or uh, break a rule, uh, do something that damages the creation or do something that's against God. And in a sense, if you could put a monetary value to that at some point in time, you, um, which is, by the way, a very Canadian thing to think about, you know, if there's been injustice in the past, let's give money to it, right? We can all relate to that, can't we? And so if you just think about that, if every time you've done that, okay, I, I, you know, I, I, I should have cut in, maybe $100 will make the person feel not mad at me anymore if I can just send it to their account. And, and I butt in line, I was rude to the barista or I, inattentive to my wife, you know, ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. And before we know it to our, our horror, we might think, I don't know, if you added up all the stuff I had to owe and never paid, I know it's a couple hundred thousand dollars or something like that. You know, no big deal, I'll get to it someday. But God said, no, no, those ka-chings, 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 ka-chings. <laughs> Buddy, you're, you know, you're, you're at the 10 billion, bark, 10 billion mark right now in terms of your debts. And so what, in a sense, you see in the gospel is this idea that Jesus, who is completely and utterly rich, he becomes poor. Listen to it again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Because you see, that's the heart of the gospel, is that not only, in a sense, does Jesus pay off all those kajings, 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 but then he gives you his Amex card. <laughs> he pays off the debt and he gives you his riches. And he does it, why? Because you, you, you only owe $10 billion rather than the really bad person down the street who owns $14 billion? No. He does it because he loves you. He does it because he loves you. And he knows you can't pay it back. That you can never pay it. Don't even talk about paying it forward. You can't pay it back. It's a type of arrogance to think we can live our lives paying forward when we can't even pay it back. Jesus pays it back. 
You see, as the gospel grips you, now here just a bit of a time out. I'm going to talk for those of you who are just seekers or trying to figure out, you've been burnt out by religion, burnt out by some types of forms of Christianity, uh, you know, whatever, just time out here, just a, a note to Christians. I mean, on one level, every single human being is made to be generous. You know, we were made to be fruitful, uh, and that means to be fruitful, that there's lots to give, and giving is the highest form of living. That's very, very true. But I'm going to talk now specifically for those of us who are Christians. If you aren't a Christian, I want to tell you this right now. I don't want you to ever give us a penny. At the end of the service, I'll see it right now. If you're having a hard time with COVID-19, if there's some way we can help you, let us know. We will do what we can to try to help you. But we'd rather you never gave us any money. Why? Because Jesus doesn't care about your money. He died for you, not for your money. <laughs> We just want to lift him high. But for Christians, there is this very, very profound call to be generous. And that's the sin of omission. Bible isn't saying you should be miserable. In fact, a very good Christian rule of thumb here, I'm talking to Christians, is uh, save 10% because you need to prepare for your retirement for other things so your debt doesn't overwhelm you and money doesn't overwhelm you. Save 10%, give 10% away. With the other 80%, have fun. Be moral, but have fun. If you like a Harley, buy a Harley. <laughs> you know, you like fancy sunglasses, buy the fancy sunglasses. Save 10%, give 10%. And give 10% means give to the local church where Jesus is lifted high, where compassionate work for the poor can also potentially be done, where the gospel can be spread around the earth. Give to the poor, but move towards tithing. Tithing is a rule of thumb. Because if we say, how, how much is generous? Is generous, you know, that I, I'm bringing home $10,000 a month and I, I give 25 cents to the bum and a $2 to Chio when they ask me at Costco? No, uh, we need a rule of thumb. In the Bible, the tithe is a, is a rule of thumb. Move towards tithing. Move towards generosity. Why? Jesus, we are being prepared to spend eternity where we will be constantly generous and constantly overwhelmed with the generosity of God. Generosity wins. Some of you might say, George, why is there all this weeping and all that? Doesn't that seem to go against what you said? No, it doesn't go against it at all. In fact, actually, here's the, the big problem that most, most Canadians don't realize they have a problem when they think about these things. You see, they, most Canadians believe, I think, that it would be really good if love won. That, in fact, love is very important. We'd all easily sing, all you need is love. <laughs> love, 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 all you need is love. It's a, a very, very powerful thing that Canadians intuitively understand. But here's the problem that Canadians don't understand. There's no love without freedom. There is no love without freedom. I mean, imagine that you, one of you, you have a, your best friend and they, uh, they, meet the, uh, they meet the guy of their dreams. And, uh, but then a week before the, your, your best friend is to marry the guy of her dreams, you happen to overhear a conversation and, and you realize that the only reason the guy is marrying the woman is that there's this rich guy just playing games with the guy's head and he's, he's going to give this guy $10 million to marry the woman. He's not loving her because he loves her out of freedom. He's, in fact, just using her. He's, he's in love with money. 
And he's just doing this, not because he loves the woman, but just... And wouldn't you instantly tell your friend, I mean, you'd be heartbroken. You'd be both furious, depending on your temperament. You might want to pound the guy. And, and you'd be crushed and heartbroken about revealing it to your, your best friend. But your best friend wouldn't marry the person unless they did it in a cynical way to marry them, make sure they got the money, and then divorce them and get half of it or something like that. But you'd see that the love dies, right? And so what this is just saying is it, it's going back to what we've talked about in other types of things. You know, for us human beings, uh, I have to watch my time. We're just going to talk about the injustice very, very briefly and then one other final thing. But see, what it is, you know, there's a, I don't know if it's true or not, but there's an old story about one of the ways to capture a monkey was that you, uh, you get a jar, uh, a bottle, and you put a nut in it. And uh, the monkey can get his hand uh, into the jar to grab the nut, but the monkey can't get the hand... Keep the, keep the nut in its hand and get his hand out of the jar. And that's how you can capture a monkey. And that's the fact of the matter. That's the profound problem that we Canadians have. We say, listen, I'd love to have love wins, but I can't give up. I can't give up. I, I, I need to have this money. I need to have this position. I, I need to have this type of sexual expression or experience. I, I need to have these views on politics. I, I need to have these views on race. I need to have this type of a feedback. I need to be able to have this wife or control my kids or do this or that. I need them to respect me and I can't, I can't give that up. And every single person we can weep and howl because the fact of the matter is, is that we have our hands on that nut and the nut might be money, the might, might not it might be our looks, it might be power, it might be our time, it might be control, it might, it might be autonomy, it might be our own definition of ourselves, but we have our hand on that nut and we will not let that nut go because at the end of the day we start to believe that that nut is more important than love winning. And let me tell you this, friends, I am not saying that I figured out the secret to let go of the nut. (laughs) I don't want you to misunderstand me. I am just like you. I could not give up the nut. All you can do is hear about Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy upon me. I want love to win. (laughs) I can't let go of the nut. I can't let go of the money, of the power, of the prestige, of being Canadian, of, of, of being anti-racist or being ra- or whatever it is, or just whatever it is that we cannot give up. Lord, have mercy on me. And that's the heart of the gospel, is that Jesus takes you with your hands stuck in these jars, and he takes you, and he wraps his arm around you, and he says, I will take you, unworthy as you are. And the message of the gospel is as if we're gripped by the gospel that Jesus begins to gently let us let go of the money or the power of the prestige. See, that's why it's so important to be generous. Just a couple of minutes. We just need to figure out, because this last part is really important and it it leads to the important end of it. Let's just finish off. We're not going to finish all of it, but uh, let's look at uh, uh, verses 4 to 
to 6, where you can see the nut here as well. But uh, chapter 5, verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the later rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And we'll just sort of pause in our reading here. Just a couple of things to bring it up to a, to a closing. You see, the first thing is here is just as I was talking about when money and power and prestige start to rule you, and it doesn't matter if you're really, really, really super rich, if you're, you know, sort of way up, I can't even point high enough, or if you're here, you're here, you're here, here, you're, but you have any, as money and power, all those things start to control you. There's all sorts of ways you'll cheat on your taxes. Uh, you know, you, you do little end runs around this. You, you, you do something to argue down the price of the person who's, you know, shoveled your snow. Uh, you, you look for different ways to make a bit more money to, to cut people out of it. And this can just grow on steroids as you get richer and richer and richer. And the bottom Bible condemns all injustice and oppression and fraud. It condemns it. God opposes the proud. And one other thing, it's a whole other sermon. The types of oppression in here that is being talked about, that cannot go on without social, political, and cultural, and religious enabling. It cannot happen without social, cultural, political religious or spiritual enabling, and it's all evil. So why is it then that the Bible just seems to go from that to just saying being patient? Well, friends, here's the thing. One of the great prayers, and those of those of you who are watching it, uh, those of us who have had anything to do with AA know that there's a very, very powerful Christian prayer that many people in AA have prayed, and this text perfectly shows the wisdom of it. And the prayer goes something like this, Lord, grant me the courage to change what can and should be changed, the patience to be steadfast under those hard things that cannot be changed, and the wisdom to know the difference. I'll say it again. Lord, grant me the courage the courage to change what can and should be changed, the patience to be steadfast under those hard things that cannot be changed, and the wisdom to know the difference. See, that's actually, the, the text is modeling this. You speak out against the evil and the injustice. You do what you can about that, but there are some things you can't change, you just need to endure. I mean, those of us who've been in AA, you know, there's these stresses, there's these anxieties, maybe there's the relationship that you desire that you could restore, but it's now too broken beyond it. And part of the wisdom of this prayer is there's some things you can only be patient about. Maybe you can just pray that there will be peace to restore that relationship or that there will be a day when uh, that person will forgive you. And all you can do is pray and be patient. It's all you can do. But there are things you can do, and there are those things you can do. You've got to do them. And gosh, you need Jesus' wisdom to know the difference. There's so many things we can change that we don't. There's so many things we're patient under that we should seek to change. We get really confused about this. Brothers and sisters, we need each other. You need to have mentors and small groups and worshiping communities where you can share your heart 
with one another and share your triumphs and share your anxieties and pray into each other and support each other. And as we pray this prayer, Lord, help us to understand those things that should be changed and can be changed. Help us to be part of that change. Those things that we just need to live under and bear under with patience. Lord, grip us so greatly with the truth of the gospel and the truth that Jesus will return, that love wins, that injustice does not win, death does not win, hatred does not win. Grant us patience knowing that is the end of the story and the end of my story is not because I am so perfect but because of what Jesus has done for me that Jesus says, welcome friend, welcome brother, welcome sister, welcome child. And grant us the wisdom to know the difference. Friends, I'm just going to end that sort of, I'll say that prayer and if you haven't given your life to Jesus, there's no time better now than just to say, Jesus, you know all those things, all those nuts in my hand that so entrap me. Have mercy upon me. Be my Savior and my Lord and never let me go and help me to never turn back from having you as my Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would fall with might and power and deep conviction upon us. Father, first of all, we ask that you would grip us again with the gospel, with this wonderful truth that Jesus, what he did for us on the cross, what he offers to us in his grace and mercy. Father, fill us again with a great, sure and certain hope that Jesus will return, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, that love wins, life wins, goodness wins, mercy wins, justice wins. And Father, help us to live our lives in light of the fact that that is the true end of the story and that Through Jesus, we can be your child by adoption and grace and and live in that future. And Father, in light of that, you know those nuts that we have our hands on, whether it's around money or power or identity or sexuality or whatever it is. Father, uh, you know those things. We ask that the, the, the gospel would so grip us and the truth of his return would so grip us that you begin to gently help us to let our hands go of those things and live lives of generosity, of forgiveness, of compassion, of mercy, of standing against injustice, of offering grace. And all these things we ask in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.